back to Podcast Recovery, everyone. We're your hosts, David O. And Eric V. And Carly Ark. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Richard. How are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you for asking. Yeah, man. Uh, so where are you from, Richard? I live in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, I'm originally from Alberta, which is... Uh, the next province over, but I've been living in Vancouver for a few years now. Nice. So, uh, when were you first introduced to recovery? Um, well, I hit bottom in um, the uh, fall of, of 2009. I had been introduced to recovery by some friends that were sober over the years, um, but of course they were mistaken, and so I, you know, give them too much um, credence for what they're saying. Spoiler alert: they were right. <laughs> they were they were correct. <laughs> nice. So, how long have you been uh, sober? Uh, I'm into my 11th year. My sobriety is December 27th, 2009. Awesome. All right. Well, with all that out of the way, we're going to turn it over to you to share your story with us. So take it away. Sure. Um, my name is Richard and I'm an alcoholic. I um, began my life uh, as the youngest of four children. My father and mother were both school teachers. My father was the principal of the high school that I grew up uh, in the town I grew up in, and there was only one high school, and it was a large high school, uh, Compton High School, so everybody in town knew my father, and um, as, and within not too many uh, uh, school years after we moved there, for him to take that job, um, they also knew me. And so my um, place in the world as a public uh, person or, or someone that was under scrutiny um, began very early. And, um, mm-hmm. and so um, the whole um, part of my life where, you know, that we often <coughs> live two, uh, two lives, um, that sort of when that began is that the appearance of of me and my role in my family uh, was more important than what was actually going on. Um, I can you know say without too much embarrassment that I had a, a mentally ill grandmother who mistreated me when I was very young and uh, and I didn't really um, know or understand uh, that impact on my life until much later. As it turned out, my, my grandmother committed suicide um, when I was about five and a half. Um, so the, the fact that she had been you know, mentally ill and had been... Uh, you know, attacked me when I was like two and a half, um, became part of the sort of family shame. And so I didn't really understand, um, nor was there a lot of understanding of my, um, my behaviors, which, uh, 
where I would have these sort of blackout rages and I would go into a great deal of, um, uh, you know, like catatonic, virtually disassociation uh, when I felt like I was in trouble um, because of what that experience. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just turned 60 years old, so we're talking about a time period in the world where, um, where mothers uh, were left at home to take care of their children and there was no um, concept of, of getting any kind of outside help or that mm-hmm. I, and I was perceived as um, a bad boy. And so I was uh, punished um, rather frequently with the wooden spoon all the way um, through my, my early childhood. And, and all of that seemed to be fine with everyone, including me. In fact, the joke in my family joked that, that uh, Ricky got more spanking than all the other kids uh, put together. Um, I wore that almost as a, a badge of honor. It wasn't until I had a child of my own and looked down into her, um, you know, sweet uh, little face and realized that the person that, that that we were talking about wasn't hit with a stick as much as he deserved um, mm. was a toddler. And, um, and I'm still at a bit of a loss as to the thinking that could go behind that um, being, you know, the spoil the rod, spare the child kind of thing, um, you know, I suppose. And and as you know, as we know, you know, boys uh, are more likely to uh, sustain this kind of uh, physical abuse, and mm-hmm. and and very often that is not viewed as a problem. It just is the way it was. And for all sorts of people, it wasn't a problem. That's just, you know, sort of what, what happened. But um, I was, you know, a super sensitive little kid, and, uh, and it, it made me um, uh, uh, sick, right? And it, it wasn't until I um, got um, help for uh, post-traumatic stress um, in the form of, of a thing called EMDR, eye movement displacement reprocessing, which is a way of processing trauma, that I was able mm-hmm. to forget to forget myself um, for not being weird or evil or crazy, but simply sick, and mm-hmm. um, and 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 that is one of the things that that one of the gifts of recovery is the the opportunity to. Um, take away all the the protective layers that I had was putting on with alcohol and drugs and all the other you know sort of numbing things that we do in order to actually get a clear view of what happened and mm. um, and then you know to be um, able to to move on from that I you know like Buddha said, you know, if you're shot with an arrow, um, what difference does it make who shot it or why? The point is to get the arrow out. And, mm-hmm. and, and so for a lot of, of 
of my recovery has been a process of learning to be able to let go of things um, and realizing that my, my hanging on to stuff was my part in a lot of these things and, and that it was my, uh, not my opportunity, but also my responsibility to be able to um, accept that, you know, the story that I was telling myself of being this betrayed, abandoned little boy may have been true at some point, but was no longer. And, and that I was a grown man um, who had his head up his butt. And that was the real story. So um, I've got, I went to university. I was, uh, you know, uh, uh, bright. I was able to get good marks without trying too hard. I um, found um, a great deal of identity in the, the idea of, of being a party machine. So, you know, there was a, you know, even at university when people would see me at the library and not the pub going, what are you doing here? And, um, and me thinking that that was pretty cool. And, and so when I got out of university in as, and I had a degree in education, so I was going to be a school teacher, but there was massive unemployment in that area, um, in that education. And that's, um, and I had a degree in English and drama. So I'd been performing since I was a little boy. So, stand-up comedy was going on. It was sort of a new thing um, in, you know, the mid-80s. And um, I tried it out, and it turned out that I had a natural affinity for that. And, um, you know, I found a job that not only were you allowed to drink on the job, you were encouraged to. There's not too many jobs that you can go to where when you show up for work, your boss offers you a drink and thinks it's weird if you don't accept it. And, um, you know, so I spent the next few uh, decades uh, drinking my way across the, you know, comedy uh, circuit. And, um, you know, and bar owners liked it. I, you know, alcoholism presents in all sorts of different ways. Uh, with me, I could drink a ton so some people you know, like are sloppy and falling all over the place. Uh, me, I could you know I could function. That I that you know it turned out you're supposed to throw up and pass out and stumble, um, but you know I I didn't, and so people didn't think that I was alcoholic. They they thought I was an asshole, and you know and it was um, you know and there's you know arguably some people that still believe that. Um, but that's not for me to help them with. That's something they're going to do on their own. But, um, you know, the opportunity to, to, you know, go into clubs and, you know, get the free drinks and challenge the audience to buy me drinks and be able to out drink the audience and, uh, and, you know, have the, the ring out of the cash register at the end of the night be, you know, double what it normally is because of the, the promotion of, of, of drinking that, that I did with my show made, um, made a living for me. And, you know, I was popular and worked those circuits a lot. Um, it, mm. and, and, you know, the interesting thing is, is that 
know, people don't know what's going on from one day to the next. Sometimes I would, I would show up in a town and my friends from university or other people would come out to see the show and, we, you know, party, you know, and have a, a wild time. And the, the next day, as they're sweeping the glass off their driveway and, and taking, you know, crap from their, their wife because of that, you know, Rick showed up and we had a crazy time. And then they would, you know, go back to their lives and maybe not, you know, go to the bar or have another drink for weeks or months. Meanwhile, the next night, I was in the next town doing the same thing. And so it was uh, having its effect, but it was going undetected and, um, and just became, you know, part of my shtick. Uh, my l- last CD, I have a dozen uh, comedy CDs, and and the last one before I got solo was called At Least There's Drinking. And so my whole uh, attitude was that life was like a kind of a, a weak, a boring party, but at least there was a bar. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that was sort of my catchphrase. I would make some social comment, then I go, well, at least there's drinking, and then I take another shot of Jack. And, um, and you know, it, it, it didn't occur to me um, that this that there was anything wrong with this. And, and to be honest, it didn't occur to the people around me either. I remember I was doing, uh, I was in Toronto with my crew, and I was, you know, now in my 40s, my crew were in their late 20s, we're sitting in a, standing in a bar one night after the, all of it, we're, you know, partying it up. And I, you know, I turned to one of these young guys that was, you know, hanging out with me. And I, I said to him, hey, I'm doing pretty good keeping up with you young fellows. He said, keeping up? Keeping up? You are a leader. Um, <laughs> so, and that, you know, and, uh, of course, we need younger and younger people because the people my age were not surviving me, right? I, I, when I made an amends to an ex-girlfriend, um, you know, a few years ago, um, she said to me that she tried to be alcoholic. She tried to stay with me, but she just could not do what she described as my lethal tolerance mm. to alcohol. Right, that I was, that I had a, a, a such a capacity to drink that it was, you know, deadly to anyone that tried to stick with it, and stay with that that plan, and and it, you know, it didn't hear me. That's one of the wonderful things about making amends is that um, it it takes care of your step one for you if you have, you know, one. Every now and then we go, well, was a bad big of a deal, all that kind of stuff. And I remember making amends to a guy um, for, you know, being mad at him for 20 years about some slight I had felt um, from him. You know, and how counterintuitive the steps are in that, you know, we, we don't make a list of the people that we've hurt. We make a list of the people that we're mad at. And so when I was able to, you know, talk to him about you know, that I had held this grudge against him all this time. He went, oh, I, I, you know, I always enjoyed our conversations. And, and even the more, you know, confrontational level of our conversations, um, 
except when you'd had a few too many, you just threw that in at the end. Except mm-hmm. in those times. Okay, so this is a, this is a caveat for Richard Lett. This is a contingency with me is that it was going to be okay unless on those occasions when I'd had a few too many, right? And I just mm-hmm. like, it, it, it's, it still makes the hair on my arm stand up that that, that, that that was part of being around me was that there was a chance that I might be, you know, hammered and a jerk. And, mm. and, I, and I was oblivious to that, right? Um, you know, or, or, you know, and so when you do, you know, make those, um, you know, amends to people, they, um, they don't know the gold that they're giving you when they just make a, a, a little reflection like that, you know, to go, oh, so that, so that I can wake up the next day and say, I'm Richard and I'm an alcoholic and I need to get to a meeting now, right? Um, mm-hmm. instead, because, you know, this is the only disease I know of that tries to convince you that you don't have it, you know? Um, mm-hmm. You know, like I went through cancer, and um, and you know, cancer doesn't say to you stay away from oncologists. Whatever you do, hmm. do not check, do not check that lump again. Right? <laughs> You're fine. Yeah. It doesn't do that, right? But alcoholism, drug addiction, you know, one of those people. Now, why are they so uptight? You know. Sure, I crashed the car, but you know who doesn't, you know, and mm-hmm. and so you know, so to so that was what I was like. Then um, a rather epic thing happened. I saw, um, um, I I came, I saw, I basically saw a murder. There was a shooting outside of a comedy club in Vancouver. It was a gang shooting, and I didn't see the shooting. I just saw the man. Everyone was rushing back into the club while I was watching out. I was drunk, and I just sort of saw the guy in the middle of the road, and I watched his soul leave his body. And I didn't care. And I, you know, when the, the, the police came and took the real witnesses away, and the media showed up, and they interviewed me, and I was drunk, and I said, you know, obviously, it is dead. Do you hear any ambulances coming? And, you know, I invited darkness in, and it came in. And from that point on, this is in, uh, you know, November of 2009, um, I, you know, became, I, I became psychotic. I lost grip. You know, you know, I was out of money and out of booze and out of friends all at the same time. And it wasn't a coincidence. And when that happens, and, and we know that withdrawal from alcohol is an extremely uh, physiologically dangerous thing. There's, you know, arguably Amy Winehouse died not from drinking, but from not drinking. And mm-hmm. um, and so when we go into that withdrawal, which is what I did, I, I became psychotic and I began running away from this gang. And I was in my car for five weeks and, you know, I... You know, and I had a bottle of shivis in the in my trunk because that's how much of a douchebag I was that I had. 
Like, to prove to myself that I wasn't an alcoholic, I had to drive around with $85 scotch in my trunk, right? Mm. And December 26, 2009, I got really mad and I drank it, right? We know how this story ends. I drank it. And, you know, very often when we go on 12-step calls, we take alcohol with us to try and stabilize people who are in psychosis, right? And mm -hmm. that's what happened. I accidentally 12-step myself in that I drank that and I was knocked out of psychosis. And I woke up the next day feeling like hell, you know, hungover, but it was a, a familiar place for me and my body and my brain. And, my, and, and there was no gang that was after me. I was just a regular stupid alcoholic and I was 50 miles away from everybody that loved and, and was worried about me. And, and I need to get help. And, and I, you know, I, you know, step two, which says, you know, in a 12 and 12 step two, my favorite line. And then I woke up and that's what happened. Hmm. I woke up and I was outside of a, uh, an Orlando club in, uh, in, in Mission BC in my car. And I woke up and I was desperate for a cigarette. And I knew that if, if you can't bum a cigarette outside of a 12-step meeting, you have no skills at all. <laughs> and I went, I, I went in there and, I, and the lady said, you know, are you here to get into the valley? And I had no idea what that meant, but uh, it got me a coffee and a cigarette. So I said, sure. Well... The valley was uh, Miracle Valley, which was a treatment center outside of uh, Abbotsford, BC. And um, and by saying that I was here to get into the valley, I was admitting to having a serious alcohol and drug problem. And you know, we talk about higher power being cunning, baffling, and, or, or, or disease being cunning, baffling, and powerful. Well, so is my higher power. I figure I got tricked. <laughs> Into admitting it because because uh, mm -hmm. guess what I haven't had a drink or drug since then right that moment mm -hmm. he said are you here to get in the valley and I said yes that was the end of it I didn't know that was the end of it I didn't know that 11 years ago by and I'd be talking on a podcast with uh, you know three people that are locked down in Baltimore about this I didn't know any of that Oh, I knew that she asked, she asked me a question, and I said, yeah, sure, yes, that's exactly why I'm here, to get into the valley, right? Well, um, <laughs> you know, I got uh, into a treatment center, I got into, uh, well, you know, when I said yes, it's here in the valley, she said, okay, less, we'll be here in half an hour, but okay, less, whatever. Well, less is drug and alcohol counselor, and... Um, the Valley was this treatment center, and Les got, you know, it took Les maybe 10 minutes to figure out that I was, you know, out of my mind and living in my car and in a lot of danger, and not from some invisible gang, but from myself. And he got me into a homeless shelter, and a few weeks later, I got into King Haven, which is a, uh, a treatment center, and I was there for 70 days. And then I, I still had no place to go. So then I moved into another shooting center in Vancouver called Together We Can. And Together We Can had a bunch of uh, second stage housing. 
that went with it. I lived in those houses for about three and a half months, and then I stayed in a friend's basement for a couple of weeks, and then by that point, I had a year of being sober, and I was able to move to Toronto and get on with my life in recovery. And, you know, since then, I've I lived, you know, in Toronto for six years. I had the opportunity to come move back here. My daughter, who's, uh, uh, you know, 25 years old, is, um, um, I get to see her, like, once a week we have, we have sushi, and, uh, and, you know, I've been able to, uh, you know, she's back uh, into holistic nutrition, and so she's, you know, able to, you know, tell me which vitamins I should be taking or what, you know, uh, high blood pressure is associated with and all sorts of stuff like that. And, you know, I get to just um, one day at a time, not, um, you know, hurt anyone and, and, and be, sort of be of service. And, um, you know, and I, I still go to, you know, these little, you know, 12 step gatherings, uh, you know, five or six times a week, even now when we're on Zoom which is, you know, better than nothing. No, it's not, I wouldn't mm-hmm. say that it's as good, but it's, you know, mm-hmm. good enough. And, um, and, you know, I, you know, I was just sharing today that progress, not perfection. When I took my, I had a, my five-year medallion in Toronto, they do them every five years, and I engraved on it, what's the point? And the point is that we're willing to grow along spiritual lines. And that's where I am today, is I'm willing to you know, accept that um, I don't have the answers, um, but I do have a solution. And the solution is relationship with a power greater than me and the opportunity to uh, share that experience with other people and, um, and be okay with that it's just you know, just bye. So that's my story. Awesome. All right. Uh-huh. Awesome. Well, we definitely have some questions for you. Uh, Carly, <laughs> would you like to lead us off? Sure, why not? Um, do you talk a little bit about how you hit rock bottom in 2009? So talk a little bit about the physical part of it, the uh, psychosis. Um, if you can think back, what were your thoughts and feelings like during that hitting bottom? Um, rage. I was very angry. I did not want to be an alcoholic. Um, terror, mortal terror. It was, it was, you know, when I think back to that, that time period, all I can remember is the dark, you know, and it was, you know, the, it was late fall in Vancouver, so it was pretty cloudy and dark, but there must have been some light, but I swear to you, I can't remember any lights during that time. So a dark, scary, confusing uh, place, and the, and the only power I seemed to have was to be angry. Mm. Mm. Uh. Um, all right. Uh. I got a question going back like more to like the beginning of your story. Like I, I related to it a lot uh, when you're talking about having, 
really like traumatic events happen in your childhood. And then like I had to deal with a lot of, uh, traumatic stuff as well. And, uh, me personally, I, a lot of my using was really self-medicating. And so like what detrimental effects showed up in like your active addiction, uh, from your like self-medication and like, how did it like exacerbate your like post-traumatic stress? Well, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, before I got sober, I was diagnosed with and treated for testicular cancer. And mm-hmm. when the, the doc, I asked the doctor, you know, what caused this? He said, well, we think it might be uh, something in the environment and um, stress and bad luck. Um Mm-hmm. And that really bad luck. <laughs> that's that's your science. Um, but um, but when it, when I look back at how I was not, um, you know, you don't have to be Freud to figure out that I had issues with masculinity um, to get mm-hmm. testicular cancer. Cancer mm-hmm. went at my boy parts, right? And <laughs> so yeah, you know, and so. Um, you know, I can track it all the way back to my grandmother um, was mad at me because I was a boy. She had been a very bright person who had all opportunities growing up taken from her because she was female. And mm-hmm. all the boys in her family got to go on and, and, you know, whatever, get education and all that sort of stuff. And she had to try and make dinner. And, mm. and there I was, this little boy that had inherited the world as far as she could see. And so, you know, um, so somehow I, I made that connection between the fact that she was mad at me because I was, that I was male. And if your grandmother hates you, how much of a piece of shit must you be, right? Mm. Your grandmother is supposed to dote on you, right? Not mm. hit you. And not, so, so... So then the self-loathing that manifested itself again and again until the point where, you know, I mean, not to turn this into a show about cancer, but the reality is, is that like people say, oh, you're cancer-free, and they go, well, no, and neither are you, actually. But anyway, um, because cancer is just an umbrella to describe um, mutant cells. And we're producing millions and millions of cells all the time. And some of them are shitty. And so, mm-hmm. but we have an immune system that spots them and takes them out, right? And they're going, you know, yeah. you're somehow, and either that or they're, they're shitty cells that can't really reproduce anyway. They just die off, right? So our body's going through this all the time, rejecting cells, you know, as we speak. However, mm-hmm. if you are taxing your immune system with stress, alcohol, smoking, all these sorts of things, then, then your immune system is distracted away from that little mutant cell over there that is able to reproduce and is, you know, not obeying any of the rules of your body and is able to molecularly grow. And, mm-hmm. and you can look at that from a, a you know, physiological perspective. You can look at it from a philosophic perspective or a spiritual perspective, but there was something eating me 
there was something in me that was not at peace. And because I was distracting it, my, my natural ability to take that care of that, whether that be a relationship with, you know, a, a loving God or um, smoking too much, the, the, it was allowed to fester and grow. And, mm. you know, and, and so, you know, when I, I look at my own, um, the, the harm that I sustained and the trauma that I sustained, it was like a mutant cell. And because I was using alcohol and drugs and, you know, porn and, you know, you know, all those things that we do to distract ourselves from mm-hmm. our, our feelings, those feelings just turned into, um, uh, in one, in my case, you know, a, a tumor, and uh, and also in my case, a um, inability to handle my feelings, and so using drugs and alcohol became, as we say, alcohol was not the problem. Alcohol was the solution, and 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 that is deadly, right? Mm-hmm. And it did almost kill me. I mean, testicular yeah. cancer is. 95% cure rate, which is not 100%. And so, you know, it was fully determined to take me out, right? And, you know, and, but, you know, for some reason, you know, the, the, either the, the government of Canada or, you know, my higher powers, some force for saying, this guy is not done yet. Because, mm-hmm. again, my my like the cancer treatment happened before my alcoholism because uh, ironically you know that uh, incredible capacity that lethal tolerance that I had for drinking um, was wiped out by the chemo and suddenly you know chemo kills everything right so I had very very strong uh, chemo because that's how they treat uh, TP is because you know they can cure it but they throw the book at you anyway you get a whole new set of, of organs. And those ones didn't have my Irish given tolerance of, you know, of bourbon. And, and now, I did, now I was drunk and people could see it. And, you know, I was drunk on three beer now. I still drank the other nine. But, you know, now people are going, oh, Rick's, Rick's messed up. Right? Yeah. And, and so... If, you know, looking at the timeline that um, in February 2008, I was diagnosed with cancer. A year later, um, you know, in, uh, I finished treatment in August. I was given a sort of clean bill of health in September, right? By December 27th, I hit bottom. So we're just, like, you know, you know, it just yeah. was very, very quick after that. That you know, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, to my family's credit, I guess um, they didn't worry too much about the cancer because you know my brother's doctor he knew that wasn't going to kill me. They were worried about the alcoholism because they knew that would kill me. You know, mm-hmm. and I see there's something ironic about that because you know I I, I spoke to a group of the, of medical students in Toronto and. You know, I said to them about addiction, and I said, you know, like, people get cancer, they go, ooh, cancer, right? But um, 
but they, you know, he's talking about alcoholism, you know, well, whatever, right? The reality is, is that, you know, with my cancer, and this is why I'm still, you know, uh, in treatment for, you say, like, that for five years, they're going to do a big check on me, and they'll see that maybe there's something that's come back, and maybe they won't be able, they'll try to intervene, they won't be able to, and it might, you know, finish me off. But it takes, it takes a couple of years for that to, to happen. With alcoholism, I could be dead before the sun rises again. And, and, mm-hmm. and that, that's how imminent and pervasive and, and, and underrated addiction is. That mm-hmm. no, the, the four people on this podcast right now are not guaranteed another day with this thing, right? And yeah. so to my efforts to, to share my story, my efforts to show up for my meetings and have to, you know, talk to my sponsor and talk to my sponsor and be all part of that is keeping me alive for another day, you know? And, you know, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but a a colleague of mine was new in the program and he had uh, gone out and then he was back and he, he was dropping me off and I said to him, you know, I don't mean to be too dramatic about this, but your life is in danger. And every time he shares, he brings that up because that killed him. That yeah. some comedian pal of his could tell him, you know, I don't mean to be a weirdo, but you're in danger. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's like, you know, and there was no, you know, punchline. Yeah. Eric, what do you got? Um, you just glossed over it, and uh, during when you were when you were talking there for a second. Um, so I really like what you. First, I'm just going to say I really do like what you were just talking about. Um, the process of, you know, how you go into remission for cancer. And you're going to have those annual checkups and to make sure that it's still in remission, um, where addiction isn't really like that. And I, I kind of, I don't know, I hear the cancer analogy all the time, and for some reason the way you phrased it hit home a little bit more. But the, uh, you know, you, you talked about different parts of unmanageability in your life. And you mentioned porn, which uh, is a bit taboo. And it isn't quite talked about as much as I think it should be. Um, so, I guess, you know, from what I, like, uh, you know, I guess the question here is, how, how have you used principles from recovery in other areas of your life to, you know, get a manage? get um, a handle on the unmanageability and powerlessness of other manifestations or behaviors of your addiction? Wow. Look at, look at the big brain on Eric. <laughs> I know. He, he always gets the good question. <laughs> um, well, well, yeah, as soon as, you know, as soon as I said that word, I realized that I had lit a fuse in the back of the room and we didn't know how long that fuse was. But the reality <laughs> is, is that um, um, I have, I spent a year and a half in SLAA, 
which Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, mm-hmm. and um, there's um, and it's um, ironic to me. I don't know if ironic is the right word. That how um, giddy and foolish and silly we seem to get when we talk about sex in recovery, even though um, we know that um, it's. Uh, um, extraordinarily destructive within um, the life of an addict. And, you know, we have buried more than a couple of our friends who got into a relationship. And rah, rah, rah. I have a joke about it in my act. I periodically I say that, you know, step 13 is not a step. It's a tradition. <laughs> so good. Yes, thank you. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> But uh, um, so, but but more specifically, what I mentioned was porn, and porn is a specific, particularly devastating erosion of of our our, our young men's souls. You know that there are sixteen year old boys that are having to use Viagra, right? I mean, when I was sixteen, I needed a pill to not be hard. And so, <laughs> so we know that something's wrong there, right? And, and when when our when our very basic function of, of the notion of our own sexuality is being sabotaged by this pervasive, and it's free now. I mean, like my first experiences, we found you know. Playboys at the dump, and they were, you know, like they were rain soaked and all that kind of stuff. And you took them back to the fort. Now, you know, you one click, you can, you know, click on your phone. I can be watching it right now. And I'm not, by the way, but I could. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, and so, you know, and and so, I think for me. The, the question you asked, Eric, and is how do you use those principles in all your affairs? And here's a little something that's kind of interesting. In SLAA, the 12 step, is not, they don't say uh, practice principles in all your affairs. It says uh, practice principles in all areas of your life because affairs were part of the problem, right? Mm. And so, um, I just think that's an interesting uh, adjustment that they needed to make. Um, but the reality is that um, um, a relationship in your higher power um, is, you know, and becoming spiritually awake is uh, how it works for me. And for me to realize that um, <laughs> that um, like that, you know, I had a piece of tiramisu six months into my uh, the recovery, uh, uh, you know, rum-laced, you know, Italian dessert, and uh, I I can taste that forkful now, right? I dropped the fork, but it, it, you know, I, my brain went, hey, hey, hey. and um, and that's what. That's what porn does, is that it, um, it, it, it seeks 
into your brain. And suddenly, you know, one of the things we talked about in FLA was um, um, groping people with your eyes, right? That standing on oh, the yeah. web, right? And that, that, yeah. that phrasing, groping people with your eyes, because I, it doesn't, there's no pleasure in it. There is no pleasure in you looking at that young woman or at that person at, that way. There, there is, you, you're not feeling good about it. They're not feeling good about it, right? And if you, you know, have been on some porn site half an hour before, um, you can't help it. You know, your, your brain is already wired that way. And so <clears throat> for me to be, you know, healthy and be able to, you know, be a, 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 a good lover to my partner, um, I, you know, I have to abstain, right? Because mm-hmm. she will never, she will never meet up to this, you know, um, faceless, um, you know, sort of videotaped prostitution that, that porn is. And, and so, you know, out of respect, uh, to her as a person as, or, and more importantly, as a respect to my own recovery, I have to go, eh, not, not going there. Right. Mm. And because it allows my brain to rest and, and then, when I look over at her and she smiles at me, right, my heart goes pitter-patter, not, you know, some debauched sort of orgy scenario. And, yeah. and it, 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 it doesn't lower your uh, uh, standards of sexuality, it raises them. And, and, and that's, I think, an important uh, notion to... to see that we, just like when we were drinking and we thought, you know, how are we ever going to have fun without drinking? And now we realize, you know, alcohol would make this shitty, right? That it would not make things fun. It made them not fun. Mm -hmm. Family dinners, a disaster. It made birthday parties, um, you know, you were late and, 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 (laughs) They didn't ask yourself, right? It didn't, it wasn't, it didn't make it better. And so all these forms of, you know, and for me, to be very uh, specific about what my uh, perspectives are on this is that porn numbs me out. It mm-hmm. takes, takes away that, you know, that, that the feeling, and feeling the feeling. And, but it doesn't make the feeling go away. It just puts it, you know, it tables it for the next uh, discussion. And if I, if I'm feeling lonely or uh, hurt or misunderstood or unappreciated, then um, the best thing I can do is feel that. You know, mm-hmm. like, you know, my sponsor says, if you're feeling lonely, feel it. That you know, like, where do you feel it? What does it feel like? It's kind of headachy and and hungry and it's in the front of your face and there's all these sorts of things. Meanwhile, while you're, you know, delving into the experience of the feelings of loneliness, somebody comes up and starts talking to you and you go, dude, excuse me, I'm trying to be lonely over here. Right? Yeah. That sounds like me. And so, yes, (laughs) no doubt. And so the same 
thing is with with alcohol and drugs and 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 shopping and and eating and porn. Um, they're all they're all just a, a, a way of avoiding feeling our feelings, right? And the unmanageability that talks about in step one is our inability to handle feelings, right? But the mm-hmm. point is that we don't have to handle them. They change. Mm-hmm. They change when, you know, and I guess, you know, I can say to, you know, um, I mean, my, my partner struggles with, you know, with smoking. And I, like, nine years, um, I mean, not smoke, so you know how annoying I am to her about that. But, um, you know, we were on the beach and she said, I just need a break to, um, you know, I said, oh, you need to go smoke. She said, yeah. I said, well, just ask God for 15 minutes more without that. And so she did. And then that feeling passed and, and it was like, you know, an hour and a half later when we were walking home that she had a third of a cigarette, right? So, yep. you know, if we acknowledge what we're feeling, we go, you know, not right now, God, I just can't. You know, then, and you will be, you won't be surprised to know that, um, God goes, okay, you know, I'll send a bird to sing at you or an old lady that needs help at the door or a phone call from somebody in recovery that needs your help. You know, every time I, you know, like I have this thing called the three P's, pause, pray, proceed. And so I'm walking down the street and I see some, you know, someone enjoying a, a, a pint at a, a patio, you know, this is not, not recently, but anyway. Um, and I think, um, well, that looks like, I, I, I would, wouldn't mind one of those. I stop, pause, I go, God, remember your little comedy buddy? Yeah, <laughs> okay. And, uh, and then, um, you know, and then I proceed, and I keep going. And every single time something happens, I get a phone call from somebody that needs my help, or, or there's, you know, uh, um, you know, the, some, some, you know, natural, uh, experience some bird things at me or sir or I notice how you know the flowers are blooming or whatever it is whatever corny thing God comes up with to to let me know that yeah that you're fine and that that impulse has been um, put in check right because if I you know we're all like a couple of weeks away from our next relapse and if I let that fester but I think you know, if I smell some weed and I go, hmm, maybe I could still smoke weed. If I don't nip that in the bud right now, um, you know, it's only going to get stronger. You know, so that's, mm-hmm. anyway, that's my, I, was, what was that question about porn? Hmm. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, you know, it's one of the things that I learned in treatment is that my, uh, a counselor was uh, a porn addict and he was Mormon and had like six kids and he, it didn't make any sense. And what he did was he wrote down every time he had an impulse to look at porn, he made a note of when, what he was doing and what time of day it was. And what he found was that it, when he was on his afternoon break and he was checking out the sports scores on his internet, 
that's when he had this impulse to, and, he, and he realized that the sports pages that he was looking at always had these scantily clad women in the, in the ads, right? And, mm. and, he, and so he had a couple of minutes off to himself and he was on a, a site that was luring in and he was able to arrest that impulse simply by monitoring when and what, right? What, when, mm. what, time, what time of day and what he was doing, right? Nice. Smart guy. Anyway, can we talk about my movie? <laughs> yes. Yes, we can. Um, so yeah. we're, we're going to, you know, so I'm on your IMDb page right now. And um, okay. before we talk about your first, your, the movie I know you want to talk about, what is going on with Corona? Yeah. I, I see that Corona is a completed project. Um, looking at the premise yeah. right now, um, you know, since we are all kind of like in a quarantine, do you want to, do you want to shed right. some light on that as well? Sure. Um, does it, is there a picture of me with a huge swastika on my head? I saw that um, on your Twitter oh page, actually, yeah. Your character looks like a bag person, kind of. <laughs> um, well, that's, that's a, a real insight you're showing there. You know, again, that's amazing. Um, the, uh, um, yeah, yeah, I'm playing a... The, Corona was uh, developed um, very quickly. A guy named uh, Mustafa Katari, uh, he had a, his longtime girlfriend is Chinese. And so uh, back in January and February, when the coronavirus was starting to become a thing, um, and it was all, uh, the, the speculation was coming out of some market in Wuhan, and he found that, that people were, um, treating every being racist against his girlfriend. And so he wanted to explore that idea. And I was cast, I'm a professional actor, and so I, um, and I knew someone in the, the woman who played, uh, you know, the pregnant woman in the, in the story was also the casting director. And she asked me if I'd be willing to do this with a, you know, super low budget um, movie. And so, um, it was just, you know, I didn't have to audition. I just, I just went in and, and, and did that. And he kind of wrote the part for me, oddly. Um, you know, he initially had the idea of a, of a dying old man in a wheelchair, but he met me and um, instead, because of my sort of voice and, and my um, sort of robust bearing, and at that point, this very large beard, um, the... Uh, he changed the role to be of someone who was more of a biker and 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 racist. You know, the, the movie was about uh, about racism and about you know um, people using uh, xenophobia as a as a, a way to you know the idea of protecting themselves from this disease. And when you know, and the premise of Corona is that fear is the virus. Right, our mm -hmm. fear of each other is, is what's um, spreading, and so mm -hmm. I represent um, almost the personification of that fear. Um, 
And, you know, it was, you know, it's, it, the film is not uh, released yet. It got an enormous amount of publicity um, because I had been the very first Corona movie because we shot it in February 14th while we could still sit around and crammed into elevators making movies and eating off each other's plates and all sorts of things that we had no idea would not be, um, you know, safe. Um, and, and we just we made this movie and, and he, uh, because we shot it, um, a, a basically it's a one-shot movie, which means that we shot it a bunch of times. I think we did it about 100, 100 times um, um, in in 20 minute chunks. And so every time the power went up on the elevator or whatever, then that was a cut. And then we would either reset and do it again or move on to the next thing. So um, so we shot it in two days and then we all went home. And then, you know, two weeks later, um, the, we were all shut down and, and Mustafa was um, in the New York Times and the, uh, Hollywood Reporter and BBC and the London Examiner and all sorts of Middle Eastern papers. Just an incredible amount of, and and the picture of me because when I went in for to do the scene, the makeup girl had a bunch of faux tattoos that she put on me. I have one. She put another half dozen on me, and then painted a large swastika on my forehead, um, <laughs> which is a fairly easy symbol to recognize and yeah. so every one of these papers has a photo and there's the old ring with his big beard sitting in a wheelchair and this massive um classic on his head and 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 because it was so you know strange time period people are getting a hold of me going are you um has something happened to your ideologies I'm going you know yeah. if you want if you want to put an end to KKK, put me in charge of it. So no, I was acting, um, and and I have a, a, a rough human form of humor, and so that really uh, um, worked well in the in the story as well. Is that I was kind of funny, but I was also, um, you know, uh, 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 you know, sort of a, a, a bully and a racist and. And you know all that, so mm -hmm. I um, no nobody will miss me um, in that story, um, and um, and that just happened, boom, right? And you know, all of a sudden I'm sitting in lockdown, and people are sending me you know news clippings from the New York Times, right? Or as, as the president calls it, the failing New York Times. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So I realize it's not your president and all that, or maybe it's. Uh, <laughs> so, so um, I wouldn't say that, but yeah. You know. So Richard, try and fix that, will you? <laughs> you know what? Try and fix that presidential problem you have, will you? We'll, we'll, so, we'll see. Hopefully. Um, okay. So Richard, uh, let's let's talk about you know the the movie that's going to be released soon, right? Um, and that's kind of yeah. your your documentary, uh, you know. <laughs> so just uh, give us a little bit of information, you know, about. I mean, 
I watched the trailer. What's the what was the process for developing this film? I mean, it looks like you have some well, archival footage, and you know, just kind of go through that. Well, I didn't do any of it. I just was him. Roy was a young man when I met him. You have to understand this. This movie is like now ten years from when it started, right? Okay. It, it, at its initial, it was um, you know premiered at a couple of film festivals, Whistler and the Just for Laughs Film Festival, and it um, and at that point it had been nine years. Uh, in the work, so now, um, um, Comedy Dynamics, uh, which is a massive distribution company, has uh, is distributing it with on Amazon Prime and I don't know another dozen or so uh, streaming platforms. However, what happened was that I was um, drinking and uh, being the the, the party animal that I was, and Roy was a young guy, and uh, Danny, who you spoke to, and I, he had been sort of a video guy around Vancouver, and I figured that all I really needed to rescue my, you know, floundering comedy career was a good video of my show. And so I got a hold of Danny, he said, I'm moving to Toronto, but I do know this kid that has a camera, and he's a fan of yours, so maybe you want to talk to him. So I uh, I got a hold of him, and then we agreed to meet, and Roy will never let me forget that I stood him up. The first meeting that we were supposed to have, I didn't make it. Then, um, and then I did actually check out some of his stuff online. I went, oh, this guy's not a complete idiot. I will meet with him. You know, I was, you know, I, arrogance and entitlement are my two major uh, defects of character. So, um, mm. if you're if you're surprised by that, you're the only three. Anyway, um, <laughs> he, uh, um, Roy, and I got together, and partway into this conversation, in the middle of the sentence that I was saying, he he said, "I want to start filming you now." I said, what do you mean now? He says, I want to go to my car and get my camera and start filming you now. I went, oh, okay. So I went to his camera, and that night I got kicked out of the Yuck Yucks, the comic club I was working on. And that night, you know, and then the following day, then it just was, you know, spiraling into the bottom. And he filmed it all. And, and, and you know, we had an arrangement that he would be the filmmaker and I would be Richard Lett. And so he never showed me a frame of this thing, right? And he shot it for seven years and held me all, all the way through hitting bottom, all the way through losing my apartment, all the way through disappearing for a while and um, then, you know, resurfacing all the way into the treatment centers and then into, you know, the recovery, and then eventually I ended up um, writing and performing a one-man show called Sober But Never Clean and um, and touring with that, and that's when he came up and uh, <laughs> filmed the process of that and, um, oh my hang on, my mother's calling me, I'm going to have to um, send her, she won't be able to take the message, can you call me back later? No, she'll never get that. Um, 
She'll leave a message uh, that will be heartwarming. And uh, anyway, um, she's she's ninety, and one of the reasons that I'm determined to um, lecture people about not socially distancing and all that stuff is because I really want her to make it to ninety-one, which will be in June as well. Anyway, point is that it was a fluke. You know, documentarians uh, are specialized in getting lucky. And that's what happened with Roy, is that he started shooting this thing, and then the film happened. So, and I didn't care, right? I mean, I, you know, I just was dying. Turns out, you know, if you see the trailer, you can see how far down I go and, and I didn't really even realize that one of the journalists that saw the film before I did because again I didn't see it until it premiered she said well I guess the next thing would have been for you would have been death and I went what? you know I didn't know I was dying I didn't know how close I was to not you know and, it, and when you see the film you know even though I'm the guy and I know that I live there's still a feeling when Roy's going to see and film me again that you're going, this guy's going to be like dead on the floor when he goes mm. next time, right? And so, and that is the nature of, of addiction. I don't think that, you know, any of the people that died during the time period that it took us to make this podcast, even in my town, let alone Baltimore, um, they didn't think that this was their last day. They didn't know and I didn't know that I was dying. And so, um, so, but I just kept on filming it, and then he ended up growing up and becoming a uh, skilled and accomplished um, filmmaker and moving to Los Angeles and, and, and employing all sorts of people and getting all sorts of, you know, sort of high, you know, sort of fancy editors and, and people to help him. And, and and turn it into, uh, you know, a very good movie. I mean, Comedy Dynamics doesn't, you know, um, distribute films that they don't think are any good, or, and they're not doing it to help people with recovery. That's no, they don't have a recovery agenda. And so, yeah. um, and so what he did was um, kind of miraculous uh, in that, uh, and it's interesting when you watch the film because as time goes on, the quality of camera and film and everything increases. So the, the movie goes from a very gritty, you know, almost, you know, like cops-like, uh, uh. you know, film style into this sort of beautiful uh, cinematic uh, piece. And it's all based on the fact that his talent as a filmmaker and the quality of equipment over that time period. If you imagine, you know, from, you know, 2010 till now, the quality of, of the technology and the, the increase in that time has been, you know, huge, you know. So, mm -hmm. so watching the film, it just becomes more beautiful. And um, as, as I emerge into, into recovery and, and into the light, I saw it twice in Whistler um, when it opened, and it was like, 
sort of wow, holy shit, man, that, you know, all that sort of stuff. So the first time it was shocking and disturbing and, and, and you know, it like was, and then the second time I watched it, I went, this is a good movie. He's, he's really created a, a, you know, I mean, it's a, it's strange to have a movie that's about you. Um, yeah. But it's good. And, you know, and it's, you know, human and it's funny and it's scary and it's, you know, and the, the one of the reviewers in uh, Vancouver said, and it has a Hollywood ending, if Hollywood would get their endings right. Huh. Um, so that was um, very, very interesting because, because it's not, you know, um, you know, and now I'm a famous star, right? It's, it's tells the story of a journeyman comedian. And for me, I, when I watch documentaries, I find it way more interesting um, for, for real, to have stories about real people than to, you know, see how, you know, whatever um, Daryl Hannah I got, you know, or whatever that guy's name is, you know, how he found his way, right? Celebrity stuff, you know. And the, the interesting thing about the movie is that I lived, um, you know, and, and the, the film's credibility uh, hinges on my continued sobriety. If I was dead or drinking, then people would go like, well, well, whatever. I mean, when you watch the Whitney Houston documentary, cannot see her dead in the bathtub in every fucking scene, right? That's mm. as what, as what, you know, she, wow, she really could sing. Wow, that was, but, but it still ends badly, you know? It, it, it is a, yeah. And there's many documentaries that people have tried to make about people in recovery, and those, and filming ended prematurely and badly, right? The, mm -hmm. the real testament to this film was Roy's determination to stick with it and to be completely immodest, my determination to, you know, be in recovery. Because as you know, it's no cakewalk. Mm. And, you know, yeah. you know it, it, it's a daily challenge. So, so it opens or it airs or what do they call it, launches June 16th on Amazon, and hey. it is, um, you know, available, pre-sales are available on Apple and various other, and maybe iTunes or something. I, I don't pay that much attention to it. I mean, I, I do, but not enough to be able to sell it the way that Danny or Roy could, um, because, I, you know, there's, there's, no money in it for me. It's not like, you know, you don't pay guys to do documentaries. That would be wrong. <laughs> you know, that's not how that works. <laughs> and, 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 and on the other hand, um, you know, maybe I'll get a gig out of it. I don't know. But I do know mm -hmm. that already it's helped a lot of people. And, and that's what floats my boat. That's what, you know, that, that helps that is what keeps me in recovery is the opportunity to, uh, to help. And, and, you know, the, the enduring, uh, sort of thing about, about never be done 
is the hope that it it provides, right? Mm-hmm. And people watch that and they go, well, you know, he he tried and he succeeded. Um, and he didn't succeed at becoming rich and famous. He succeeded at becoming a, 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 a as they say in that uh, crazy book, man among men, worker among worker, friend among friends, right? It doesn't say Academy Award winner among Academy Award winners, right? Because if it did say that, then Robin Williams could have made this film or Heath Ledger could have made this film or, you know, um, you know all the litany of, of people that we've lost um, yeah. who had it, all, uh, had it all but didn't have, you know, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, all these people that just, you know, commune. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and the world of comedy is, is full of them as well. You know, I can't, you know, I mean, and it's, and there, and it, you know, it's like when you, when you, you think of Mitch Hedberg, sure, mm. you can handle off a, a few of his jokes, but it's really hard not to see him dead in a hotel room from a heroin overdose. Mm-hmm. You know, I would rather be a, a you know, a, you know, washed up, um, you know, comedian working the, you know, the conventions and fundraisers for recovery than, and die an old sober man than be rich and famous and, you know, and leave a legacy of, of addiction. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, but I would love lots of people to see the movie because it would be nice if Roy could get some of his money back because, you know, it wasn't free. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, if we, so, so uh, um, anything else? Uh, no. I just have, no, go uh, ahead, David. I just have, like, one one last question. So, what like what are some like quick warnings you could give to anybody out there that's uh, in in recovery, um, in in show business? Like, what what advice would you give to them? Um, probably one of the most important things that I learned is about being right sized. You know when. So we, like, sometimes I would do shows when I was early in recovery and I was still doing, you know, and I was back doing comedy and the audience would love it. There'd be, like, you know, uh, you know, cheering and laughing and, you know, everyone loved me. And then, and then my colleagues would ditch me to go off and drink and smoke pot and I would be left alone and I'd be back on the streetcar headed out of there and feeling like crap. So I would go from way up high to way down low. And, mm. and, and so what's, you know, important for me is to not let myself get too, like, you know, high on how awesome I am. And, huh. and that protects me from um, going too far down when I get lonely and hopeless. Um, you know, I said to my daughter, um, that I thought that if I got a big movie or was in an, an important festival, 
that that might impress her. And she said to me, oh, that's what you think impresses me. Interesting. Mm. And I said, well, what, what does impress you? She goes, well, you beat cancer and you are living in recovery. So when people ask me about my dad, I can say, you know, he's a poet or he's a comedian or he's, you know, or, or, or so, so what I don't have to say is he's dead or he's a drunk. And, yeah. you know, that my daughter is impressed with my ability to find good sushi restaurants and my <laughs> willingness to sit in coffee shops and, and, and listen, right? That's what, that's what humans do. And, and so the, the idea of that, that these dust glass vessel or, you know, all these things, you know, have any meaning at all is just ego. I don't, you know, of any story of any person on their deathbed saying, you know, send this video to, you know, just for laughs or phone Visa, I think I can make another payment. You know, you know, what we crave at the end of our lives is just another moment with the people that, that loved us. And and maybe the opportunity to, you know, to have breathe, you know, the sea air or sea of sunset or all that corny stuff that actually is what it's about. If this virus has show, shown us anything, it's that all our stuff means shit, right? You know, you know like... We're all leveled. We're all on an equal surface disturbance now, right? When you, when you see um, Stephen Colbert in his, you know, living room or, or Seth Meyers in his attic, right? And you see they're just doing the same thing as we are, right? Mm-hmm. They got, you know, they got dogs and, and, and kids and, you know, you know, good sweaters and bad ones and and that's what that's really what it's about so if you want to be a, a stand-up comedian if you want to be um, in recovery and also be in show business you you have to be able to accept that um, that that stand-up comedy is a drug and uh, attention is you know, uh, uh, you know, like a bump on the back of the toilet, and and you have to, you know, be careful about that stuff. You know, my show sober but never clean talks about stand-up comedy being my addiction, right? Mm-hmm. And we can we can become addicted to all sorts of things, but um, you know, it, when it comes down to it, the things that really matter. Right. If you can be honest with it, what what really matters is that you know when I get off the phone here, I'm going to phone my mom, right? Yeah. And and she has a son that um, you know she doesn't have to worry about. You know, she has a son that worries about her. Right. That wasn't always the case. You know, that wasn't always the case. So sometimes my mom will say, "Can you talk to my friend because her son is alcoholic?" Can I? You know, and maybe you can tell her and help her. And so, well, you know, I can, Mom, but the person who has experience with being the mother of an alcoholic isn't me, it's you. You're the one that can carry that message to her, that, that message of, of hope, right? That, 
you know, that, 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 and, and so, you know, that, so, the, the way I handle trust, the way I handle it all, I just, you know, I don't want to be too corny, but I just pray. I pray that my words be of service to the people that hear them. And when I'm doing a, a big convention or I'm doing a fundraiser and I've got a moment, I don't think I'm going to be able to pull this one off or everybody before me was way funnier than I'll ever be and all that sort of stuff. I just take a moment, I, I say the serenity prayer, and I just ask, just let me be a service to these other people. And it, it flies. Mm. You know? Love and, just, and just a bit of advice, when you're walking into that club, say hello to the doorman. Say hello to the people that are there with you. Because just because your picture on the wall doesn't mean that God thinks you're more important. Right? Yeah. And, mm. and stay connected with the people around you. Because, um, because they're 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 all, you know, God's beautiful children, and they deserve, um, you know, uh, you know. Hello, how are you tonight? Right, just like everyone else. Okay, any other ones? Oh, I think that's about it. Mm-hmm. Got anything else, Eric? No, no. Um, okay. you know, Not I, Eric. I don't want to answer Eric's questions. <laughs> <laughs> No, that was that was uh, all right. that was great. Yeah, yeah, man. Well, all right. Well, we would like to uh, thank our guest Richard for joining us. Woo! Yay! <laughs> well, thank you, and thank you for uh, uh, me. And uh, and watch out for that documentary June sixteenth on Amazon. Uh, uh, Never be done. The Richard Glenlet story. And and. Uh, they have me back on your show to talk about it once you've seen it. Yeah, for sure. All right. Definitely will, man. Okay. Well, I actually, you have a good night, Richard. Okay, thank you. Night. All right. Here at Podcast Recovery, we are aiming to expand the scope of support for recovering addicts. Accessibility and convenience of helpful services is paramount to combating addiction. We work to bring the message of recovery to every addict, wherever and whenever it is needed. We believe that a powerful voice of recovery should be obtainable, practical, and at the touch of a button. Every addict deserves to hear a message of hope, and podcast recovery is here to provide it. All right, everybody, thanks for joining us, and definitely thanks to our guest, Richard, for joining us all the way from British Columbia. Uh, Check us out on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube for more information about Carly, Allie, Eric, and myself. Go to podcastrecovery.com and certainly check out his uh, new movie, Never Be Done, which will come out June 15th, I believe he said. 16th. But most importantly, everybody out there, stay safe. 15th? 16th. 16th. And, you know, everyone, Thank you. Thank before, you. before David signs off, we do have a Patreon page. So if you guys do feel the need to, um, you know, throw a few bucks support our way and podcaster. support us, uh, think of it as the seventh, you know, tradition. Think of it as a basket. Um, to help us maintain uh, the show uh, with different maintenance um, cost and recurring fees that come up with hosting and you know equipment, etc. Um, but David, go ahead. Yeah, you know, do do your little sign out. Most importantly, everybody out there, stay <laughs> safe and stay clean. <laughs>